Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. All right, guys, let's dive into God's Word now. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 is where we are. Go ahead and turn your Bibles there. If you're a guest with us or if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. That's our gift to you. We want you to take that home. Well, last Sunday, we learned what it means for Christians to be salt and light. We learned about our identity as children of God. Jesus said this. He said, you are salt. He said, you are light. So he stated a fact and he really summarized our function, our purpose, and our role as disciples. And we learned that we're not to go against our identity. We're not to lose our saltiness. We are not to hide our light either. Two key points from last week. Number one, we are not only to enjoy God, but to proclaim him. Number two, you can't have God's truth without God's people. Well, in today's scripture passage, Jesus makes a transition in his preaching. Remember, this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is his sermon that we're studying. And he tells the disciples, so after last week, after he tells his disciples who they are, he now tells them who he is. But he doesn't do this directly. Jesus chooses to reveal his identity through the scriptures. Jesus uses the very book that has been questioned and attacked in, in some form or fashion uh, for thousands of years. Some of the most common questions today are, well, how can we even trust the Bible? Isn't it full of contradictions? Doesn't it have a bunch of errors in it? I mean, why would we take this ancient book seriously? We don't even have any original manuscripts. That's a problem, isn't it? It was, written by, it was written by men. It wasn't written by God. Well, if, you're, if you find yourself asking those questions, or people are asking you those questions today, good news, because Jesus is going to address those things. And once again, he's not, uh, he's not addressing them directly, but indirectly. So the overall question for today is this. What does Jesus... What's he have to say about the Bible? And really, how does that impact you today? Why do you guys even care what Jesus thinks about the Bible? Well, let's find out because it, this subject matter today, it touches on something that we hear about nearly every single day in the news and on social media and with our friends, our neighbors, and our loved ones. So if you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and following. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, 
not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all of these things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Wow. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you. So let's dive in here. Verse 17. Jesus says, don't think. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So why would Jesus start this way? Why would he say, don't think? Your translation may say, don't suppose. Uh, Don't misunderstand why I'm here, guys. Why would he start that way? Is it possible that Jesus says this because he knows that people are talking about him? And they're making their own assumptions about him. They're making assumptions about his work. So why are people speculating here? Why are people drawing specific conclusions about Jesus's personality? Well, Jesus doesn't act like the other rabbis, does he? He hangs out with women. He spends time with sinners. He doesn't, he also doesn't teach like them. He has an authority that they don't have. He performs miracles. He forgives sinners. Jesus also stands up to the Pharisees, the scribes, and the, and the Sadducees. Have you ever noticed that Jesus, he never identifies himself with any sect of, of Judaism? Whether it's Pharisee, scribe, Sadducee, or even the zealots. He doesn't associate with any of those groups. So in other words, he doesn't choose a denomination. It's not like a Baptist, Methodist, or Lutheran thing. Not only that, Jesus has the audacity to correct each one of these groups in their theological misinterpretations of Scripture. So people know, they know that Jesus is different, there's no doubt about that, but they don't really know why. In their estimation, Jesus, he seems to be this rogue rabbi. And this rogue rabbi is just ignoring thousands of years of laws and traditions. He appears to be a rule breaker with his own agenda. And it's in that context that Jesus says, don't think. Remember when you were a kid? Or maybe even now when someone says, don't even think about it. That's that's the tone in which Jesus speaks here. So Jesus is going to set the record straight right here and right now. He says back to verse 17, don't think that I came. Came from where? Where did Jesus come from? If you ask Jesus' mother, Mary, she would say, well, you know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth, and now he lives in Capernaum. But is Jesus referring to his earthly lineage? Is he referring to his earthly heritage? Or is this coming language, is it hinting at something much more profound? 
Is Jesus giving us a clue here about his pre-existence? It could be. John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. So Jesus' pre-existence is a possibility in this text. But our gospel writer Matthew here, he also uses this kind of coming language later in the gospel. He refers to both John the baptizer and also to Jesus. Let me show you this, Matthew eleven eighteen, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, well, this guy has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they said, well, look, this, this guy's a glutton. He's a drunk. He's a friend of sinners. So which one is it? Is Matt referring to Jesus' earthly existence or his pre-existence? Well, when we look at Matthew's original audience here, which were the Jews and the Jewish Christians, uh, and, and then also we look at Matthew's theme for writing the gospel, which is Jesus is the King, Jesus is the Messiah. There's a good chance here that this phrase hints at Jesus' pre-existence. Regardless, Jesus begins this section of his sermon with a warning. Back to verse 17, he says, don't think that I came to abolish. Here we have the first instance of a significant word in this text, abolish. It's the same word used for the destruction of the temple, Matthew 24 and 26. Your translation may say set aside. Uh, Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy. I didn't come to do away with. I'm not here to throw down. So the word picture here is that Jesus didn't come to overthrow or destroy what was previously written in the Old Testament. Jesus continues, don't think that I came to abolish, abolish what? Abolish the law. The Jews had a lot of laws. 613 of them in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments summarize those 600. And within those 600 plus laws, there's three general categories. You have the moral law, you have the judicial law, and also the ceremonial law. So what law, what set of laws is Jesus referring to here? Well, notice that Jesus says the law. He includes a definite article, the, the, capital L for law. The law, it, it represents the Mosaic law, which is the law of Moses, Mosaic, Moses, Moses, Mosaic. Um, that's the first five books of the Bible. Yeah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Jews called this the Torah. Hebrew word Torah means uh, to guide, means to instruct. So back to verse 17, Jesus says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Aha, we got another clue here. The prophets. The prophets include the rest of the Old Testament. So we have the Mosaic Law, the first five books of the Bible. And now the prophets include Joshua all the way through the prophet Malachi. And when you combine the law and the prophets, that equals the entire Old Testament. So the disciples, they would have immediately understood what Jesus was saying here. So let's, let's pause for one second. Because when I read this text, I go, okay, I get that. I, I, I know that God's law is fundamental to his word. But what's the deal with the prophets? 
Why does Jesus, along with the rest of Scripture, combine the law with the prophets? Well, to find the answer to that question, it's really important to take a look at what a prophet is, the role of a prophet. A great definition of a prophet comes from the book of Exodus, where Yahweh tells Moses that he has chosen Moses to set the Israelites free from slavery. Moses does not want to do this. He makes a ton of excuses, and one of those excuses is that he's like, God, I I can't even speak. I can't talk well. And God says, no problem. No problem, Moses. Your brother Aaron, he speaks well. We pick up the story in Exodus 4.16. God says, Moses, Aaron will speak to the people for you. He will serve as a mouth for you, and you will serve as God to him. So in other words, God has purposed that the prophets, and this is so important, God has purposed that the prophets correctly interpret the law. Now remember, the prophets were not popular guys. They gave warnings, they rebuked, they called people out uh, to repent of their sins. They also notified and advised. They reprimanded the kings regarding their sin. Many of the prophets were killed because of that truth that came from their, from their lips. So verse 17 continues. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So what's Jesus mean here by fulfilling the law? Well, we got a couple options. It could mean that Jesus was perfectly obedient to the law, and there's no doubt that he was. Jesus kept every part of the, of the law perfectly. Jesus is the perfect model of, of always doing the right thing at the right time. Jesus did what you and I cannot do. He, Jesus not only kept the Ten Commandments, but he says that he came to fulfill the law. So how did Jesus do that? How did Jesus fulfill 613 commandments that are found in the Old Testament? Did he do that through the Gospels? He did. He did, but it's not in the way that we normally think. Yes, obedience was a, was a big part of this fulfilling, but here's the deal, and this is key point number one. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law by being the fulfillment himself. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law by being the the fulfillment himself. So in other words, Jesus didn't only come to preach and teach and interpret the law. He is the law, right? He is the singular, that definite article there. He is the only one. Capital L, he is the law. And guys, this is where it gets really, really fun. From the first page of Genesis 1-1 all the way through Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, the Old Testament points to the person of Jesus Christ. The people, the places, the things in the Old Testament, they're a mere shadow. They're a type of the Lord Jesus himself. So let's take a look here and see how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. If you would, if you have your Bible, turn to the table of contents. Flip to the very, very front. 
And what I would like to do is give you a big picture here of how the Old Testament points to Jesus. So in Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, Jesus is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, Jesus is the high priest. In Numbers, Jesus is the one who tests the Israelites. In Deuteronomy, Jesus is the prophet Moses. In Joshua, Jesus is that divine warrior. In Judges, Jesus is the judge himself. In Ruth, Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, Jesus is the Davidic covenant. In, in Kings and Chronicles, Jesus is the preeminent king. In Ezra, Jesus is the scribe. In Nehemiah, Jesus is the builder of that broken wall. In Esther, Jesus is Mordecai. In Job, Jesus is the redeemer. In Psalms, Jesus is the shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Jesus is wisdom. In the Song of Solomon, Jesus is the bridegroom. In Isaiah, Jesus is the prince of peace. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, Jesus is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, Jesus is the four-faced man. In Daniel, Jesus is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, Jesus is the husband. In Joel, Jesus is the day of the Lord. In Amos, Jesus is the burden bearer. In Obadiah, Jesus is the Savior. In Jonah, Jesus is compassion. In Micah, Jesus is the requirement. In Nahum, Jesus is the avenger. In Habakkuk, Jesus is the judgment. In Zephaniah, Jesus is mighty to save. In Haggai, Jesus is the restorer. In Zechariah, Jesus is the rider on a red horse. And finally, in Malachi, Jesus is the Lord of armies. Dear friends, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law because he is the theme of the entire Old Testament. This book that you have is so precious because it is a love story of your redemption back to him. Jesus is the scarlet thread that ties the Old Testament to the new. And dear friends, no, it's not a linear deal. This thing is like this, isn't it? It's not a, it's not a, a, a quick biblical historical narrative. And yet there's one particular item that helps us really understand this truth. And that item is the tabernacle. It eventually becomes the temple. So we've got a picture of the tabernacle on the screen. If you've got my notes, um, you may have that, that handout as well. The tabernacle is a place where God's presence dwelt among the Israelites. 
The tabernacle was the most significant feature of the Israelites. The whole religious system, their whole society was based on the tabernacle, which turned into the temple. And yet every element within the tabernacle, it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take a quick tour of the tabernacle here, starting from the outside. The tabernacle only had one door. So it's on the right hand side there. The Israelites had to enter through this one door, which always faced east to the courtyard. We fast forward to the Gospels in John chapter 10, verse 7, and Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. Next, as you walk to the center of the tabernacle, you're going to see that blue circle in the middle. It's next to the, uh, to the uh, roofed portion, the covered portion of the tabernacle there. That blue circle is a laver. The laver was a basin, a water basin, where priests washed their hands and their feet daily. They could not enter the tabernacle, that covered part, without washing in the laver. We fast forward to the Gospels, and Peter told Jesus on Passover night, in John 13, 8, he says, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. Next, as we walk into the covered portion of the tabernacle, we would notice a light that is coming from the inside of that covered area. It's number five on the graphic. If you've got the graphic, it's up there at the top left. That's the golden lampstand. And that lampstand was the only light in the tabernacle. Without the light, they could not see God's presence. We fast forward to the Gospels in John chapter 8, verses 12, and Jesus says, I am the light. And now everybody can see God's presence in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Next, when the priest walked into the tabernacle, there was a table with 12 loaves of bread. It's number seven on your graphic there. That bread is called the showbread. The table, it represents a place of communion. It, it represents a fellowship between God and man. We fast forward to the Gospels in John 6.35, and Jesus says, I am the bread. I'm the bread of life. As we continue our tour around this tabernacle, we're going to start to smell something. Number four on your graphic is, is the altar of incense or the golden altar. This is a place where the incense was burned. The incense, it represented the prayers and the intercessions of God's people going up to heaven. We fast forward to the epistles and he, Hebrews 7.25, and the writer says this, he, that's Jesus, Jesus is able to save completely those who came to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. So in other words, the incense represented Jesus's prayers for his disciples. Next, we would see a thick curtain that separated the tabernacle from another room. That room was called the Holy of Holies. It's number three on your graphic. It's the veil the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant lived. 
the Ark of the Covenant was this big wooden chest. It, had, uh, it was overlaid with gold. It contained the Ten Commandments and a few other things. But here's the thing about, about the, the Ark of the Covenant, or the veil. If the high priest barged through that veil by being disrespectful or without being sacrificially clean, he would fall over dead. God would strike him dead. You say, why? Well, that's not very loving. <laughs> the reason why, guys, is because God will not have sin in his presence. And yet we fast forward to the epistles and look at this. Hebrews 10, 19. We now have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. The high priests were so scared to enter through that veil, and now we have the boldness to do that? Unbelievable. So that's the tour of how Jesus is the fulfillment of every detail of the, ta of the tabernacle. I do want to point out a few other things. I mentioned the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is the centerpiece of the entire tabernacle. On top of the Ark was a lid, and it was called the mercy seat. One time a year on the Day of Atonement, the blood of a goat was placed on the mercy seat to cover the sins of the people. And yet we fast forward to the epistles once again in Romans 3.25, and the Apostle Paul says this, God presented him, God presented Jesus as the mercy seat by his blood. I mentioned the priest working in the tabernacle. In the Old Testament, the priests were the mediators between God and man. And yet we fast forward to the epistles and we find, we find out that Jesus is the once and for all high priest. Look at this, Hebrews 7, verse 26. For this is the kind of high priest that we need. Not that we want, we need this kind of high priest. We need somebody who's holy. We need somebody, in other words, who's different, who's not like us. We need somebody who's innocent, someone who doesn't have any sin whatsoever, someone who is not defiled, someone who is undefiled from the world, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day like the high priests do. First, they had to do it for their own sins. And then for the sins of their own people, he, that's Jesus, Jesus did this once and for all. Once for all time when he offered himself. And finally, that brings us to a sacrifice. So the priest, they're not really what we think of today, whatever image you have as a priest in your mind. In the, in the Old Testament, the priests were more like butchers. They were always making sacrifices for sin. Regardless, an unblemished lamb was slaughtered once a year for the covering of our sins. The priests would, what they would do is they would place their hands on the lamb. And what this did is it symbolized the transfer of human sin to the lamb. And then the lamb was slaughtered because of that person's sins. Why something so drastic? Why all the blood because of sin? 
Hebrews 9.22, according to the law, which we're studying right now, right? According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood. God says there's no forgiveness. In other words, sin is that serious. Once again, we fast forward to the epistles here, Hebrews 10, verse 11. Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time and time and time again. It can never take away the sins, take away our sins. All it did, the the Old Testament sacrificial system was nothing but a Band-Aid. All it did was cover our sins. And then verse 12, but this man, Jesus After offering one sacrifice for sins forever, that's himself, he sat down at the right hand of God. So all this detail this morning to show us that Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law by being the law. So in other words, Jesus is the Old Testament. Jesus didn't come only to teach righteousness He is righteousness. What he said and what he did is a reflection of who he is, which is revealed all throughout the scriptures. So that brings us to key point number two. The Old Testament was inspired by Christ. It points to Christ and is fulfilled by Christ. Jesus presses into this point in verse 18. He says, truly, I tell you, truly is amen, comes from the Aramaic, it's rendered amen. Uh, Amen, It, it means that this statement is absolutely true. And guys, right here, right here is where the application of this text comes and applies to every single one of our lives today. In a world of relativism, What Jesus is saying is, this is truth. This is true. This is a holy truth. Jesus is truth. It's not from this world. His words, right? They come from outside. They come from heaven. Now, we may say amen after a prayer. Or someone might say amen in the middle of a sermon. Eh, Thank you, sir. (laughs) Right on cue. And what that means is that is true. Jesus, however, does something unique. He doesn't end his statement with amen. He begins with it. Matthew 18, for truly I tell you, the apostle John uh, likes to double down on that. Truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus says, I tell you. What Jesus is saying is I'm I'm the authority here. Jesus speaks with the authority. And what Jesus is saying is this. This truth that I'm about to tell you is absolutely certain and true. It's undeniable. It is indisputable. So let's pause one second here. Because no true prophet in the Old Testament other than Jesus would dare say that. False prophets, they they say stuff like that all the time. And we're going to deal with the false prophets next week. But true prophets in the Old Testament, they said things like this. They said, this is what the Lord says. And then they would say it, right? 
Thus says the Lord, or this is the declaration of the Lord, and the prophet would then say what the Lord said. So back to verse 18, for truly I tell you until heaven and earth pass away. Oh boy. When are heaven and earth going to pass away? <laughs> Jesus gives a ta- he gives us a taste, right? Of the end times here. Heaven and earth won't pass away until after the millennium. The 1,000 years where Jesus himself rules the earth as king. The phrase there, what Jesus is saying is, look, the Bible will outlast the universe. The prophet Isaiah confirms this. The prophet Isaiah, by the way, was born five to seven hundred years before Jesus was born. He says in Isaiah 51, 6, he says, look up to the heavens and now look at the earth below for the heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants will die like gnats. But my salvation will last forever. How is it possible that the Bible will outlast all of creation as we know it? Jesus presses in. He provides more details here. He says, for truly I tell you until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law. So think of somebody writing. Stroke of a letter, it literally means a little horn. It refers to a very small mark that helps distinguish one Hebrew letter from another. So in other words, not even the tiniest letter is insignificant in God's word. The ESV renders verse 18 this way, not an iota, not a dot, not a dot of an I will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. The smallest letter in the Greek alphabet translates to the word iota. If you've got the New King James Version, verse 18 says, one jot or one tittle will by, will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. So I want you to think of a, of a jot as a lowercase l versus i. We got that slide, Clint? There we go. Think of a, a jot of turning an l or an i into an l. It's just that one little stroke or even the e or an F into an E. It's just one little stroke. Jesus says not even that little thing will pass away. So what's Jesus saying with this analogy here? Well, he's already told us he's not abolishing, he's not canceling the Old Testament. He's doing the very opposite. He came to fulfill because no one else can. Jesus is affirming, and this is so important, Jesus is affirming the absolute authority of Scripture down to the smallest parts and pieces of individual words. In other words, Jesus is pro-Bible. He's pro-Bible because He is the Bible. And because Jesus is pro-Bible, so are we. Jesus affirms Scripture in this way so clearly that we as a church 
Bible's our middle name. That's how important the Bible is. You know, in our statement of faith, we say this. We say that we believe and teach that the Bible is a perfect treasure. It's a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth. Without any mixture of any errors, there are no errors in Scripture, for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture, totally true, totally trustworthy. Once again, Scripture confirms this. The Apostle Paul is writing to his protege, Tim, 2 Timothy 3.16. And Paul says this, he says, Tim, all Scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training. How? In righteousness. Jesus always corrected inerrant teaching. Whether it was intentional or not. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. 29, Jesus is talking to the scribes and the, the religious leaders. And he says, you guys are mistaken. How are they mistaken? Because they don't know the scriptures. They thought they did, but they misinterpreted them. And we'll get to that next week. You know, many people say, they'll, they'll have this passage, and they'll say, well, you know, this, this scripture passage, it means this to me. Dear friends, scripture can't mean one thing to one person and another thing to another person. Now, there may be several applications to that scripture, but there is only one proper interpretation of that passage. So Jesus continues in verse 18. Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, not the stroke of a letter will pass away from the law. Everything is going to be fulfilled by me, by Jesus. When? Until all things are accompanied until all things are accompanied or accomplished. So Jesus is not only talking about his death, his burial, his resurrection here. He says all things, which includes the rest of what's written in this amazing love story. This passage has a crucial lesson for us today, especially for, from a judicial perspective and the reason for that is because we live in an age where people claim that there is no truth. And if there's no truth, then there is no law. If there's no law, then there's no lawgiver. And yet, in Exodus 20, verse 1, before God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, Jesus says this, or excuse me, Yahweh says this, God spoke all of these words. God spoke. In other words, God is the author of these commands. It's not man. It's God. But see, if the world doesn't believe that God has given us a set of laws to live by, then we live in a state of lawlessness. In other words, nobody can tell us what to do. We get to do whatever we want, believing that there are no consequences to our life decisions. The reason that God gave us the law is because God and law, they go hand in hand. God and law are two sides of the same coin. 
You cannot have one without the other. Because when you subtract law from God, you subtract authority from the standard. And when you subtract authority from the standard, you have no authoritative system where laws have substance and meaning. And all you have left is this never-ending philosophy of who's right and who's wrong with all these different opinions. And the world becomes one big experiment of trial and error. Welcome to the experiment. But whether the world believes it or not, God is the lawgiver, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So there are consequences to our choices. So dear friends, the law was not given us, was not given to us to get us into heaven. It was given to show how hard our hearts are towards a thrice holy God. It was given for the sole purpose of coming to the end of ourselves so that we may repent of our sins and that we would see that we have a desperate need for Jesus as our Savior. I'm going to invite the band to come on up at this time. Uh, we get to fulfill the law uh, today, the new law of the New Testament with a baptism, so the band's going to get settled in here. As they do that, I want to give you one last verse. 1 Peter 1.20. Peter's writing his legacy in 1 and 2 Peter. And he says this, He, that's Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last days for you. Now, Jesus is many, many things. And today we learn that he is the law. And that means Jesus is the judge as well. But see, Jesus is also grace. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And dear friends, that's great news. That's the best news we will ever hear. And the way to develop that friendship, the way to develop that relationship, is first and foremost for us to repent of our sins to cry out to a holy God, to turn from our sins and run into the arms of a Savior. And after we do that, the relationship, that's just the start. So there's two ways to develop this relationship with Jesus. Number one, it's through the law. It's through the reading and the studying and, and the praying of God's Word. When you get home, read Psalm 1. Read Psalm 119. Oh, my word, it is, it's so beautiful talking about God's law. And number two, reading and studying and praying, yes, that's, that's one aspect of getting to know the Lord. That's the vertical aspect, right? But there's also the community aspect. Allowing yourself to be loved inside a community called the local church. And, and, and to how to learn how to apply these things that you're, you're reading. Because guys, there are only two things that are eternal. God's word and y'all. All right? That's good news. Now look, I, I know you were drinking from a fire hose this morning. And I pray that it, it, it opened up 
part of your study to where you get to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And maybe you have more questions than answers at this point. And I would say that's a very good thing. Next Sunday, we're going we're gonna to see what Jesus has to say about his law being tampered with. These false teachers who interpret their own opinion on his word and how they handle his, his law incorrectly. Father in heaven, what a beautiful, beautiful passage. Lord, I pray that we do fall in love with your word. And when we fall in love with your word, we fall in love with you. Lord, please allow us to continue to dive deep into the riches of your glorious word. And let us, Lord God, share these things with the people and the events and the places and, and everything that happens to us this week. May we not keep your law to ourselves. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.